Well, we are diving into a new series this morning. Um, I, I was looking at my calendar this last week and realized we're, we're kind of getting close to Thanksgiving, right? Have you noticed Christmas decorations in the store? I think every year we have this conversation, but it just seems like it's getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, so we are fast approaching the holidays. But it was a few weeks, actually a couple months ago, in my time of devotion, I was reading in John chapter 11, uh, the account of Jesus when he hears about Lazarus being sick and everything that transpires after that. And the Lord really birthed this message in my heart in this series of messages. So we're going to we're going to take a few weeks and talk about waiting, waiting, something we all love, isn't it? Any of you just love waiting? doesn't matter what it's for. You just love waiting. The more I can wait, the better. No, we, we're not good at waiting. Would you agree with that? We're not, we're not good at waiting. We, we want things to happen quickly. We, we live in an instant gratification kind of world. I, want this. I think that's part of the reason that a seven-game series, right, is so, so painful. Like, if we just do one game and it's done, but no, we've got to wait to see what's going to happen, and you've got to kind of draw this thing out. We want instant gratification. And it's not just that we're not good at waiting. We're not good at waiting patiently. Patience is not a strength for us as a culture in any way, shape, or form. Every, every now and again, we get to take uh, missions teams to Nairobi, Kenya. And one of the things I always do with the teams that we take in preparing them is, listen, you think traffic in LA is bad, you get to Nairobi and it's a whole new level. So we'll have a schedule of events for the day and I say, these are kind of suggestions based on what the traffic is doing. And at least in LA, traffic's somewhat predictable. In Nairobi, not at all. Today it could be open, just smooth sailing, it's more of the same road, for no particular reason, you're there for three hours. It just is, is nuts, and so we actually have to train our teams, because we get into this idea that I want to just get there, I want to stay on schedule, and I don't want to wait. So I want to do a little experiment this morning, um, and I want to, I want to, I'm going to show some pictures, and I want you to just kind of gauge how you feel, what your emotional response is. So these images as I put them up on the screen, okay? You ready? You ready? You good? All right. All right, check. Oh, there you go. It's already up. You got ahead of me. Oh, my goodness. Probably like the epitome. We just dive right into the deep end this morning. The epitome of waiting in the United States of America, DMV. Even if you make an appointment, Right? They say, make an appointment, it'll go faster. Well, faster than for these people, but yeah, still not the greatest. Or how about this one? When you're at Costco and the line is extending down the aisles. Well, and how many of you do the whole, like, okay, I'm going to pick the fastest aisle, and then you're constantly watching the people next to you to see if you're winning or if they're winning? We're so weird. Uh, how about this? Doctor's office. Now here's the thing about I love about this one. There's no people, but you still know you're gonna sit there for an hour. <laughs> right? At least in the other ones, you're like, there's people ahead of me. Here you're waiting alone. Do you see me? Am I invisible? 
Yeah, that, that waiting is no fun. This, this one for the, those of you who travel, TSA. I, I was coming back from Seattle a few months ago and I stood in the longest TSA line I've ever stood in in my life. It wrapped around, like, it's one of those, like, you're going through the stanchions and, like, the whole zigzag thing, and you're like, okay, we're coming around the corner, we're almost there, do you realize that what's ahead of you is about twice as long as what's behind you? And, uh, it was, it was nuts. Almost two hours in the TSA line was, it was pretty crazy. I, okay, we're going to go back in time a little bit. A lot of you are not going to get this, but some of you will get this. Alright, you ready for all 80s here? Go for it. You guys remember that? The 12, the 12 CDs for one penny, right? You remember that? Columbia Music or BMG, some of you are like, I have no idea. See, now what we have today is Spotify, right? And so you can, oh, want to listen to this song. We have Google Home in our house. And so whatever we want to listen to, at any given point, no matter how obscure it is, we go, hey, Google, play this music. Someone's phone's going to go off. That's, that's. Hey, Google, play this song, and it comes on. But back in the day, if you wanted to listen to music, you would get one of these, and you put the little stickers on, and you would or cut them out, and you would send them in the mail with your penny, which was just weird, and, and then you would have to wait for the music to come, right? So, so that was, uh, yeah, that, that was for, for you 80s people. Of course, no conversation about waiting in LA would be right without that, right? How many of you, you just have an immediate stress response to that? You're like, ugh, right? A little, a little waiting in LA. So of course these are comical examples of waiting. But the reality is there's things that we wait for in our life that are a lot more serious, a lot deeper. Things like waiting to find out if you got accepted to a, a college or university. Waiting to find out if you passed a test. Waiting to find out if the job interview well and you got the position or the promotion. Or even a little more serious, a little deeper, waiting for the doctor's report to come back, for the test results to come in. Maybe it's having a desire to be married, but you're waiting for the person that you're supposed to marry, waiting to meet them, and then wondering, is this the person? And then once you feel like they're the right person, waiting for someone to actually produce a ring in the whole equation. Maybe it's waiting to have a child. And an on and on the list goes, waiting to be out of debt, waiting for the pain to go away, waiting to stop the grief. We end up in these places where we're waiting and we don't like waiting. We want things to be satisfied, things to be better, things to be taken care of, things to be fixed right away, as quickly as possible. Why? So that we can be comfortable. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. We want to be at peace. We don't want to hurt. Those, those are all good motivations. But what it does is it becomes a struggle. It becomes a struggle in our lives because it points out the fact that we want to be in control. In essence, it's a battle against self-sufficiency. That I am my own master and I need to be able to fix the things in my life. And, and, and waiting is indicative of the fact that there's things outside of my control that I can't do. That I can't fix, that I can't make right. And so it's not really the waiting that we despise, it's the fact that we're out of control. We're not in control. 
That's what's so difficult. This kind of thinking that says, if, if I could do it for myself, I would. If I had the power, I would just make this right. But we know that there are things that we can't do for ourselves, that we were never designed to do for ourselves. We know that in so many cases we're not strong enough, we're not wise enough, we're not rich enough, we're not disciplined enough, and on and on and on it goes. And so for everyone in, anyone, every one of us in this room this morning, at some point, this message and this idea of waiting will intersect our lives. It looks different for each of us because we're different people on different journeys with Jesus. But I think at some level, we all get this. We all know what that's like. John chapter 11, if you want to turn in your Bibles there this morning, the words will be up on the screen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. We're going to take a look at the first part of this story. As I was reading in John chapter 11 in this account of Lazarus, I realized there's some distinct moments that take place as Jesus moves from where he was to finally calling Lazarus out of the grave. Spoiler alert. Lazarus comes back to life. Right? Lazarus dies, but Jesus calls him back to life. But there's some things that happen along the way that I think the Lord wants us to grab a hold of this morning. So we're going to start with the first section. Starting at verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Jesus answered, are there, no, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm going to tell you, I read that, and there's some things that just kind of bother me. This is kind of bothering me about Jesus' attitude and the way that he, he moves and, and the way that he responds. Honestly, it bothers me only if I think about things through a human perspective, though. I mean, here's Jesus talking about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he says, it says that he loved them. John, 
unpacks this idea and, and, and gives us this window into the relationship. These were not acquaintances. These were like family to Jesus. He spent time in their home. Mary had this close relationship with Jesus, washing his feet with her hair. He loved them. He was close. Mary and Martha are desperate. They send this message, Lazarus is sick. Now, we have to put this in context for ourselves because we get sick and it's like, well, I have a cold or I'm feeling under the weather, so I take this medicine or I go to the doctor if it's really severe. But for the most part, uh, you don't wake up in the morning going, I don't feel well, this is probably going to lead to death. Okay, maybe sometimes, right? But, but more than likely, it's not. But in those days, they didn't have, have the health care that we had. And so a minor illness, a cold or the flu, could be deadly. You probably wouldn't recover. There was a reason that the average life expectancy was in like the, the, the late 30s to the mid 40s. If you made it into your 50s, you were ancient. We already see that the, the effect of incredible healthcare in our world, people were living longer. There was a thing I heard on the radio the other day saying, like listing the countries where you, with the longest life expect, expectancy. But just so you know, number one, Spain. Spain is the country in the world that has the longest, they, they say in the next 10 years, people will be living into their, uh, into their 90s on average in Spain. I don't know why that is, but it just is. Yes, they know how to take a break. Someone will probably say, oh, it's the red wine or something. Jesus loved this family. He loved them deeply. Lazarus, is, this is not a good report. And so there's this line in verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, the desperation of Mary and Martha is not matched by the response of Jesus in this moment. Because they were so desperate and they knew it was so bad that if Jesus didn't come and there wasn't an intervention from the Lord himself, this man, their brother, the one that they loved, wasn't going to make it. It wasn't going to be a good report. But Jesus' response is really the opposite of what we would expect. He stayed there two more days. When I was a kid, my sister and I would go spend time with my grandparents, and they had eucalyptus trees in their backyard, and, and we like to climb the trees, but you know eucalyptus trees are really smooth, They're, they don't have a real rough bark, and so my sister had managed to kind of shimmy her, shimmy her way up one of the branches, was hanging on, and then like the grip let go, and she starts sliding down this branch, and so she starts screaming, like, like, blood-curdling, like, mind-chilling scream for my grandmother to come help her. My grandmother was one of the most calm people I'd ever met in my life. And so she just starts walking over. And my sister's response was, Run! Don't walk! Sometimes we come to Jesus and we ask things of Him. And then He waits two days. And the response of our heart is, run! Don't walk, don't stay where you are. In fact, we would interpret Jesus' response as not loving. 
If you really loved them, Jesus, you would have gone right when you got the report. If Jesus really loved you, if Jesus really loved me, he would answer my prayer right when I prayed the prayer. But Jesus stayed two more days. Two more days. I have three points I'd like to share this morning out of this passage, three observations. The first is this. God hears. God hears. See, here's the thing. Jesus understood the message that was brought to him. It's not that he didn't get what was being said. That the messengers show up. Hey, Jesus, Mary and Martha sent us. Lazarus, the one you love, is sick. Jesus didn't go, oh, you mean... You know, he's just having a bad day, or, right, he's just feeling some discomfort. No. He, he understood the message. He heard what was being said and wasn't, that was being conveyed in that moment. He, he hears. And when you cry out to God, he hears. There's never a point where he doesn't hear what it is that you're asking, the thing that you're crying out about, the thing that you're declaring, the thing that's on your heart, the thing that you haven't even said out loud, the thing that you've just thought inside your own heart and mind. God says, I, I hear you. I want you to know this morning, whatever it is you're waiting on, whatever it is you're walking through, God hears you. He's not ignoring you. He's not distant. He's not aloof. Maybe at the encounter of Elijah with the prophets of Baal up on the mountain and he starts taunting them. Hey, scream a little louder. Because maybe your gods are asleep. Or maybe they've gone on vacation or, right? Got earplugs on or, right? They've got, they're listening to their air AirPods. I don't know. A little contextualization there. Scream louder. And then Elijah, when it's his turn, just says a quiet, simple prayer. Why? Because Elijah knew that God heard him. Can I tell you, it's not about how loud you scream or shout or jump up and down. The volume of your prayer, the volume of your cry doesn't make you hear, make God hear you any more or less. He hears the, the prayer that is whispered, whispered and the cry that is whispered in the middle of the night when you're all alone. He hears the prayer that is offered up when you're standing in agreement with someone. He hears, like I said, even the prayer that's prayed internally and not even declared out loud. God hears you. Psalm 40 verse 1 through 2 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. The most important thing I, I feel in this whole deal right here in this passage, he heard me. He turned to me and he heard me. That he's not ignoring you this morning. He knows. He hears rather What's happening in your life? He hears your cry. Second thing is this. God knows. God knows. 
Not only does he hear, but he knows. He sees the circumstances of your life. He knows the beginning from the end. See, because he knows with an eternal perspective, he's not limited by the things that limit us. And so he knows what's happening in your life. Here's, here's the reality is the enemy wants to make us feel like God doesn't know and then he doesn't hear. And that we're all alone and that we're isolated and that nobody knows. That nobody knows. But God knows. He knows exactly what you need, how you need it, when you need it, or if you need it at all. He knows. John 11, 4 says this, when he heard this, right, going back to the story, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This sickness will not end in death, yet what's the next thing that happens? Lazarus dies. Why could Jesus make that statement? Because he knows. He knows. He's not limited by this earth, by this realm, by these bodies. He's not limited. This sickness will not end in death. But Jesus knew that Lazarus would die. He could see beyond just what was happening in front of where they were. John eleven fourteen. he goes on to say, later on, he says to the disciples, Lazarus is dead, right? Because he says, Lazarus has gone to sleep. And they're like, all right, you take a nap. That's good for you, right? If you're not feeling well, go take a nap. All right, anyone relate to that? Go take a nap. You'll feel better. In our house, our house, we, there's a few things. If you're not feeling well, like Megan and I, our automatic responses are take a shower, drink some water, go to sleep. That's, that's what we just tell you. Not feeling good? Take a shower, drink some water, go to sleep. That's, that's what you're going to get. What we get, if you're sleeping, you're going to feel better. And so he says he's gone to sleep, meaning that he's died. And the disciples are thinking, hey, that's a good thing. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness. Lord... Father, the disciples that you've given me, kind of like Moses. No, guys, listen up. Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, Because, but let us go to him. Man, you could read this, and if you didn't know the heart of Jesus, this seems very uncaring, very flippant. Lazarus is dead. But I already said he wasn't going to die, but I'm not confused. Jesus is not confused about what's going on. He knows exactly what he's doing. God knows what needs to happen. Jesus knew that there was something bigger at work here. To the point that he says, listen, it's, it's beneficial for you guys that Lazarus has died. Uh, can we just stop for Put yourself in the position of the disciples and Jesus making that statement to you. Hey, listen, this person has died. But it's really beneficial for you that, that they die. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because this is going to build your faith and it's going to be for the glory of God. So let's go. By the way, what happens here in the story, one of the things that happens in our own walk with the Lord, the, mess, the, the, the people with the message come to, to Jesus and say, hey, we need you to come right now. So he stays. Then what happens is Jesus says, okay, he's died, we need to go. And now the disciples' response says, but wait a second, the last time you were in Judea, things didn't go well and they tried to kill you. So you shouldn't go. And Jesus says, listen, we're going. You know, it's amazing to me that in this whole account that 
Everything they wanted Jesus to do, he did the opposite. Well, that's not a very loving God. Yes, it is. There may be times in your life where you're asking God or looking for God to move in a certain way. And everything you're asking him to do, he seems to do the opposite. It's nothing new. You're in good company with the disciples. See, because God is not on our agenda. He's not fixed to our agenda or to our demands or our requests. He moves sovereignly. He moves eternally. He knows the beginning from the end. And so he says, I'll, I'll move when I'm ready to move. Because I see with the perspective, I know what's going on. See, God is working for you. For your benefit. He's doing things for your benefit. They just might not be in a way that seems like it's for your benefit. Best way I can describe this is, or illustrate this is this way. You've all been in the grocery store before. In the candy aisle. Or the sugary cereal aisle. And there's that kid. You know that kid. Right? Mom. Usually it's mom. Actually, it's always most because the dads just cave right away. Or the dad's the one actually buying the bad stuff. Mom, I want that candy bar. No, you can't have that. And what follows is kind of this breakdown of the family unit as this child begins to throw a fit, right? I mean, I've seen kids on the floor, in the store, screaming. I've seen kids hitting their parents. And what usually happens? They get what they want. They get the candy bar. They get the sugary cereal. And the mom or the dad, their thinking is, okay, let's just let's not make a scene. If I can just get you to stop. Let me ask you this question. Has that parent helped or hurt that child? Hurt. Deeply hurt. Because they've bought now into this line of thinking that says, if I make enough noise, and I stomp my feet hard enough, I will get what I want. Then I bring that into my relationship with God. See, for that parent in that moment, and I get, I've been in places with my kids when they were little, where I'm like, everyone is watching. I'm embarrassed. But at the end of the day, I'm a parent, and I need to parent my child, not just in the moment, but for their lives. And so I want to reinforce things that are, are, are good values and good decision making. And so that kind of thing, that giving you what you want in the moment doesn't help you in the long run. Yet we come to God. God, I want you to do this. I need you to do this. God, I prayed and I asked you and you didn't answer my prayer. You must not love me. And I don't think I can love you. Maybe we don't say that out loud, but something in our hearts wants to go down that road. Something of the sin nature creeps up. God, I just, if you really love me, you would fill in the blank. But here's what I know about the love of God. He loves you too much to give you your own way. He's not going to cave. He's not going to give in. See, we do not have the ability to change God's mind or to manipulate him or arm twist him into doing what we want him to do for us. 
you're not that good. Because you don't see full, you don't see the whole story, you don't see the full perspective. And more often than not, the things I'm loudest about, the things I'm most vocal about, the things I scream about are the things that I need the least. God says, no, I have better things for you. So, I'm going to wait. And you're going to wait. And wait. And wait. And we've already established, none of us like waiting. Least of all for the Lord. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Paul writes these words. Do not be anxious about anything. By the way, and we've said this before, if you're anxious and someone says, do you stop being anxious? Does it help? No, it doesn't. So Paul's encouragement here isn't a stop being anxious. He's saying, listen, there's a way to not be anxious. There, there's, there's a door that's open to you to move from anxiety to peace. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcend, transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses here this whole issue of waiting, this whole issue of how do we come to God appropriately, appropriately in prayer. Listen, don't be anxious, and if there's things that are causing you anxiety, bring them to God. In every situation, with prayer and petition, ask Him. We're not saying don't pray. We're not saying, I'm not saying this morning that you shouldn't ask God, and that you shouldn't be persistent in your prayer. We shouldn't be demanding in our prayer, but we absolutely need to be persistent and press in in prayer. But we need to do it with thanksgiving. That thanksgiving comes on the front end, not on the back end. Why? Because God knows. He knows what you need before you even know that you need it. So if I pray to a loving God who I know cares about me, and I can say, God, here's my request, and thank you, God, for answering that prayer. The way that I know you will answer the prayer that's best for me. And it starts changing our heart. And now that, that anxiety starts diminishing, it doesn't mean that the situation necessarily changes. But I can be at peace in the midst of adversity and not be anxious because of the peace of God. And the peace of God, he says, which transcends all understanding. God knows. God knows. He sees the beginning from the end. What will it do? It'll guard your hearts and your minds. Why? Because my heart wants to rebel against God and my mind wants to think thoughts that do not honor Him. But if I come with that posture, God, you know best. And I'm asking you, not demanding, I'm asking of you, would you answer, would you move in this situation? And I'm going to give you thanks. Before I even see what I would characterize as an answer to that prayer, I'm going to give you thanks. It changes your heart. Listen to me this morning. Persistent fervor in prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Persistent fervent prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. There's nothing you will ever do in your life that will change the mind or heart of God. But as you keep coming to him, 
and making those requests known and, and bringing a heart of thanksgiving, what it will do is change your heart. It will change your faith. It will change your posture. It will change your life. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's a great verse. But we land on the desires of the heart part. God will give me the desires of my heart. Right? What's that, what's that lottery ticket up to now? Like $1.4 billion? There's a lot of desiring of the heart going on. There's a lot of people going, oh Lord, if you would just bless me with this money, I will do boom, boom, boom. And God's like, first of all, no, you won't. Right? I mean, the statistics in regards to people winning the lottery and then how their lives blow up afterwards, money doesn't solve issues of the heart and soul. In fact, it magnifies them. God, give me the desires of my heart. And God's like, not that desire. And not that desire. And not that desire. See, it starts with the delight yourself in the Lord, which means, God, I'm going to align my life with you, with your word, with your promises, with your way of thinking, with your kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will, all these things will be added. See, what we've adopted is this. If you give me the desires of my heart, I will delight myself in you. That's dangerous. It's not healthy. And God does not respond to that. Because it's akin to a kid in the grocery store stomping their feet and screaming at the top of their lungs, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. God says, no. I care about you too much. God knows what you need. And then finally, God moves. God hears, God knows, and God moves. See, God was and is moving before you even knew you had a need for him. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God set in motion a plan to bring about reconciliation. Before you were born, God had set in place a way and a means by which you could be saved, that the greatest need of your life would be met at the cross. See, God has always been moving on your behalf. He's never stopped moving on your behalf. And even in those times where it seems like he's silent, God is moving. He never stops moving. He never takes a break. He never backs off. He's always, 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 always for you. Always. He loves you with an unending, ne never-ending love. Romans says that, that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing in, in heaven or on earth Right? The, the, the depths of the ocean, nothing, nothing that anything that has ever been dreamed up could separate you from God's love. So he says in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This idea of waiting is so counter to our Christian culture. It's so counter to our theology and our doctrine because we've made our faith about us. Years ago, there was a singer named Michael Carter. I remember my parents listening to his music. It wasn't my choice of music because I was ordering my CDs from Columbia. 
We had the cassette tape. And one of the lines in that song, I remember as a kid, and it's just embedded into my heart and mind. In this line, Michael Card says, We've made Christ in our image. So our faith is idolatry. When we start fashioning and shaping who God is and our, our brand of religion and our brand of doctrine to fit our needs, it's no longer God-honoring, it's idolatry. And God will not honor that. So wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart. Why would you need to be strong and take heart? Because waiting for God isn't easy. It's not easy. It's not skipping through the field with the daisies and the butterflies. It's not. At times it is agony. At times it is painful. At times it's God take this away from me. I don't want this. In fact, Paul echoes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in verse 7, the second part says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That doesn't fit nice and neatly into a blessed me theology. Does God want to bless you? Oh, you better believe it. But Paul here comes to terms with the fact that sometimes difficulties come into our lives, not because the enemy is opposing us, but because God is allowing something to find place, to unseat the broken places in our lives, to unseat the comfortable places in our lives. Why? So that His grace would be sufficient, that His power would be on display in our lives. My desire is that I would learn to pray that prayer. Remember a few years back that book, The Prayer of Jabez, came out, right? Oh, Lord, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. A great prayer to pray, but we make it doctrine. We make it the focal point for ourselves. And if God's not blessing me, I'm not doing something right, and, and he must not love me. Or maybe there's something that I've done wrong and we start evaluating the performance of our lives because if God's not blessing me, it must be because I'm not living up to His expectations. And nothing could be further from the heart of God. See, because He's moving. Jesus started moving in the direction of Judea to be able to go and do what God was calling him to do in calling Lazarus out of the grave. He knew what the end game was. And the biggest thing, the biggest end game, the biggest part of this whole story was not that Lazarus would come back to life, it's that God would be glorified. So we have to examine when we're asking God to move on our behalf, is it just because it'll make my life better or make me look better, or will God get the glory in the midst of what's going on in my life? There's a posturing here that's so critical for us to understand. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. We don't do that. I put my best foot forward. I hide all the brokenness and all the weaknesses. And I can't let people see 
I can't let people think a certain way about me. And so we all just get into this one-upmanship where we come in on a Sunday morning and we look around the room and go like, wow, I wish my life was as together as that person's life is. And the reality is that for all of us, there's brokenness. For all of us, there's pain. For all of us, there's disappointment. disappointment. For all of us, there's things that we are waiting on. And we might not parade around going, hey, here's my brokenness. Like, I made a t-shirt about it. Let me announce to you, because that's not necessarily appropriate either. But God's desire is that we would connect so that we could stand with each other. I think one of the greatest lies of the enemy is you're alone. You're alone. No one else knows. No one else is going through this. And no one cares. Can I tell you, you are not alone. You are not alone. See, one of the ways that God moves on our behalf is He mobilizes people. And He brings people into our lives at just the right time. Maybe for a short season or maybe for a long season. And He allows those people to speak life and encouragement. Hey, you're in the, in the midst of battling a storm, and it doesn't seem like the storm is going to end anytime soon, but you know what? You're not alone, and there's people around you to walk through that storm with you. Okay, we can do this together. God is moving. Psalm 31, 30, verses 5 says this, I wait for the Lord. Listen to this, church. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. In his word, I put my hope. See, God's word is full of his promises about how he is moving on your behalf. God hears you this morning. God knows what you're walking through. And God is moving. He is already moving and has been moving on your behalf. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for. But would you receive the encouragement of the Holy Spirit? God cares about you. He's doing something that will be for your good and for His glory. We're going to close in worship this morning. Our prayer team will be available. If you need a partner in prayer and ask someone to pray with you today, we would love the opportunity to pray. I'll be in the back as well. But if there's a particular place that you've been waiting and the waiting has just become very difficult and you just need someone to encourage you or stand with you in believing, we'd love to do that this morning. That's what this is about. You're not alone. You're not alone. There is no shame in this place. There's no condemnation in this place. We're real people facing real issues. Serving a real and powerful God. Let's stand this morning as we close. Father God. Jesus, I know that there's been times in my life where I've cried out. And it seems like you stayed two more days. Or weeks. Or months. Lord, I pray this morning you would undo fear 
and doubt. I pray that you would undo the lies of the enemy that have declared that God doesn't care, God doesn't see, that, that, that God doesn't care, that he doesn't know. God, that we would be met this morning by your grace and by your love. Your grace is sufficient and that your power and your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So Jesus, this morning, as hard as it is, we celebrate our weaknesses. God, as we press into prayer, I pray that you would change us, that you would transform us, that you would rebuild us, that you would grow and increase our faith. And Lord, that we would be a people who truly, completely, consistently delight ourselves in you.